You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. Well, we got a little bit of this, a little bit of that to kind of comb through today. Don't really have a theme, I guess. Um, I want to touch on some news and notes for the Packers, the Lions, and the Bears. Nothing interesting for the Vikings, sorry. Um, my thoughts on the, the only real thoughts that I want to cover on the Bears, because I don't want to go over the team quite yet is um, actually kind of a look back at their last win. Because although it was their most convincing win, I'm going to put an asterisk, asterisk next to it with a little Worcestershire sauce on it. I'll explain why. The asterisk, not the Worcestershire. Worcestershire. Worcestershire? Well, sure. And then uh, just a couple other things I wanted to talk about because uh, that's what we do here. We do what I want to do. And hopefully you're into it, because then you come back tomorrow. Sound good? All right. First of all, just a very quick update on the lines. It won't take very long. Uh, I just want to play this clip for you, laugh, and then we'll move on. No, you just... When you you see your players give all that they have, and, uh, and you lose that way, it's tough. You know, you don't want that for them. So, um, but we'll be better for it, you know. And there again, credit Minnesota, but, um, you know, we, we made the one mistake that cost us, you know. And, uh, and so, ultimately, you know, it, uh, we, didn't, we didn't do enough to win. But I was proud of them, and I love the fight they have in them. And I love the grit. I do. And... Uh, when your defense plays that way, you you got a chance to win every game. I thought our defense played lights out today. I really did. What? Are you going to cry now? Strong men also cry. <laughs> You're such a baby. Yes, I am making fun of a grown man for crying. That's exactly what I'm doing, for those of you wondering. I mean, the only thing that the Lions had going for them, which I don't even know if you can call it a thing, is they got this ultra-masculine, like, hyper, we're going to bite your kneecaps and, like, smash you in the face. We're going to knock you down, and then when you try to get up, we're going to kick you in the throat. And then when you try to get up, we're going to, you know, slash your eyeball or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's this weird storyline that he put out, that he put out, specifically him. It's not like he said we're going to be tough, and then his, you know, his ball boy started crying. He said we're going to be like this real hard, tough, blah, team, right? Well, the team hasn't won a game, and now he's crying about it because they made a mistake and lost the game, which is what happens a lot 
every week it happens to a lot of teams. And I can't recall the last time ever, really, that a, a team has, has uh, had a coach come to the podium and cry. Maybe it's happened. I don't know. I hope it was at least like for a Super Bowl loss or something. Not some random week five loss to the, the Vikings that you were fully expected to lose. I don't know. I, you know, there was a sense of optimism because I, like I said, the, the Lions are going about this the right way. They're, they're te- tearing everything down and rebuilding and largely prioritizing the trenches. And, you know, we build outward from there. Problem is, I don't know that they're hitting on any of their draft picks, and their coach is kind of a goof, and that's not a great combination when you can't draft and your coach is a little weird. I know, you know, the, the that's not, you know, how he handles the locker room and his preparation and game planning and play calling and all of those kinds of things factor in, but buy-in is pretty important. Uh, the The last guy that was there, players wanted to get out immediately like literally before they even got there they wanted to get out I don't know how many times I've reminisced about the story of I forget who it was I think it was Snacks Harrison actually saying when the the phone rang he didn't answer it (laughs) when he saw the Detroit Lions calling him anyways I guess since we are on the subject um, pretty significant Lions news is that Frank Ragnow their center who is an extremely good football player that was drafted a while ago um, is out for the entire season. Uh, Quintez Cephas, one of the, not a great wide receiver, but one of their best. Uh, he has also been put on IR. TJ Hawkinson missed practice, and Jamal Williams is limited in practice. Again, not super important, but they're starting to get bit by the injury bug, it looks like. And the, the Frank Ragnall thing is, is brutal. However, they are positioning themselves quite nicely to get the top quarterback in the draft. Um, and I guess as long as that's not Matt Corral, that's fine. Although I'm, I'm getting worried about that. I'll say this though, not that anybody cares. I don't. I can't imagine Matt Corral as much as I like him as a guy that's just going to come into the NFL and tear it up right away. He's in a pretty unique college system that I think is going to take some time to retool him for the NFL. Is my thought. Well, I guess since we're on it, we might as well go through the the Vikings injuries. Dalvin Cook uh, did return to practice. Uh, Justin Jefferson, however, was held out of practice, as was Alexander Madison and Adam Thielen. I mean, basically all of their playmakers, Thielen and Jefferson and Madison and Cook. I mean, Cook practiced, but I mean, that's that's the whole group. That's everybody. <laughs> so uh, have to keep an eye on that one. More importantly, though, I did want to talk a little bit about the Chicago Bears. Um, sounds like Justin Fields is good to go. He will be playing. I think I said that yesterday, but in case I didn't, I will... Uh, reiterate that. However, there were some moves made by the Chicago Bears, and I want to talk about them a little bit here. Um, Ladarius Mack, Durian Parker, Rashad Smith have been signed to the practice squad. Ryan Nall, Sam Kamara have been promoted to the active roster. Linebacker Jeremiah Atachu and offensive lineman Jermaine Effetti have been placed on IR, meaning they're not going to be playing. If you're wondering about these two guys and uh, their contributions and whatnot, Jermaine, uh, Jeremiah Atachu is a, uh, well, I guess you wouldn't call him a starter, but he does play pretty significantly. He's played 129 snaps so far through five weeks. For clarification, he is a outside linebacker, not inside linebacker, commonly referred to as an edge rusher, which is what everybody should be calling them from now on. Stop calling them linebackers. Anyways, he is edge three um, for this team, meaning Roquan Smith, Khalil Mack, 
and uh, Jeremiah Atachu is next. After that, you have Travis Gibson, who has about half the amount of snaps that Jeremiah Atachu has. So while obviously he is not one of the top guys, it is similar to us losing uh, Rivers insofar as you kind of worry about the rotation a little bit. You don't have that guy to help your stars, Robert Quinn and Khalil Mack, get some breathing time on the sidelines so that they can come in and dominate on third down. And so they are down to only having three edge rushers that have taken a single snap this entire year, Travis Gibson being the third. Nobody else has. As for uh, Jermaine Effetti, he is their starting right tackle. He's not a good right tackle because they don't have good offensive linemen in Chicago, but he is their right tackle. In his place is uh, coming Elijah Wilkerson, who's going to be playing um, at right tackle. Elijah is a 2017 undrafted free agent, uh, played mostly for Denver, has never really played well. You might be wondering, well, how did he do in the uh, absence of uh, their right tackle last week? He did well, but we'll get to that. We'll get to all that. Um, Again, asterisk with Worcestershire sauce. In addition to losing their third edge rusher and their starting right tackle, uh, Mr. Damian Williams was limited in Wednesday's practice with foot and knee issues. And if you're wondering why we care about Damian Williams, because I've never even heard of him, Damian Williams is their RB2. Well, at least he used to be while David Montgomery was still on the team. David Montgomery is now on IR. So Damian Williams is their RB1 right now, and he's hurt with foot and knee issues. And if you listen to any Chicago Bears person out there right now, they're saying that we found the secret to success. It's run, 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 run the ball, which is hilarious because they've been pumping up Justin Fields. And it's like, oh, we figured it out. Don't ever let him throw and we can win. But again, asterisk and all that stuff. Um, However, Mr. Damian Williams, uh, 16 attempts, 64 yards, four yards per carry and a touchdown. Not overly thrilling. The only other running back that they've got, uh, at least that has taken a snap this year, is Khalil Herbert, who is a sixth-round pick this year. Um, He had 18 attempts for 75 yards, 4.2-yard average, so it's going to be a pretty even split between these two guys. Damian is your horse, and Khalil is going to be your quick, shifty guy. Surprisingly enough, Damian, the larger of the two, who is 224 pounds, is actually quite fast as well. It's 4.45 speed. Um you know, for his size, is also the receiving target, not Khalil Herbert. He has not had a single target all year. In addition to that news, uh, Darnell Mooney was limited in uh, practice. He has been somewhat of a standout wide receiver for the Chicago Bears. Even more worrying for Bears fans, though, Allen Robinson did not practice on Wednesday. The ankle issue is new, it says, but Robinson is no stranger to playing through injuries. He hasn't missed a game since 2018, despite making his fair share of appearances on Chicago's injury report. Still, his practice status will be monitored throughout the week. Robinson has gotten off to an awfully slow start in the 2021 season, topping 35 yards just in just one game. The Bears are expected to be trailing in Week 6 against the Packers, hopefully upping their pass volume. If Robinson can't turn things around this week, it'll begin to look like time to panic. So the, the whole thing, I mean, there's a decent amount of optimism among Bears fans. I mean, not, you know, I did, again, I did the interview yesterday. There wasn't a ton, but it's, it's, it's centered around everything that's crumbling, right? We like Justin Fields, except Justin Fields hasn't really done anything yet. And while we really like the running game, except our running back is on IR and our second string running back, our number two running back is, um, well, he's hurt, but uh, 
We also really like, you know, we got a couple wide receivers we like, except Robinson is hurt and not practicing. Also, he has not really gotten off to any bit of a start this year so far. But, you know, we got Darnell Mooney, and uh, it's about it. So we got a terrible offensive line with a mediocre at best quarterback, um, hodgepodge group of running backs, uh, a star wide receiver that can't do anything and is hurt, and then Darnell Mooney, who's pretty good. So, so there's that. That's where the Bears are at right now. But I, I want to uh, I want to touch on something quite quickly here. A Cu- couple different things. The well, the main point, as I said, is that I believe this past week should be. I think a lot of people see it as a thing that you circle and say, "This is what the Bears really are." I think that's silly. Couple different points. Let's look at the Chicago Bears and see what it is that they did well last week. If we look at their offensive grades, was it their quarterback? Did he finally get off to a great start? No, he was the third lowest graded player on their offense with a 51 overall grade. That wasn't quite it. Well, was it was it Darnell Mooney, their, their wide receiver? No, 63 overall grade. Well, how about Allen Robinson? Well, no, 61 overall grade. That's not it. So who was it? Well, um, you had uh, Elijah Wilkerson, the brand new white right tackle who's never done anything well, who came in and spelled... Uh, their right tackle, who's now on IR. You've got um, Andy Dalton, who's going immediately back to the bench. He threw like one pass. Uh, James Daniels, the right guard, who's done nothing really at all this year. Cody Whitehair, offensive lineman, that's quite terrible, as well as Sam Mustafer. So in other words, the entire offensive line was dominant. Center, 70 overall grade. Left guard, 74. Right guard, 75. Right tackle, 81. So, um... Aside from Jason Peters, who graded out poorly at left tackle, the entire offensive line did really, really well. There's a problem with that, though. It's not really sustainable. Nobody is under the impression. See, here's the thing. If Aaron Rodgers had played poorly for four straight weeks and then had a great week five, there's reason to believe maybe he turned a corner. Because it's Aaron freaking Rodgers, and we know that he's better than those four weeks. If it's Devontae Adams, fine. If it's, for example, Khalil Mack, okay, maybe he turned a corner. If it's Allen Robinson, maybe he turned a corner. If it's Justin Fields, oh shoot, maybe he turned a corner. The thing is, though, there's we know what the Bears' offensive line is. We know that these are not good football players. And the fact that the entire offensive line, all at the exact same time, that offensive line that is consistently terrible every single week, all at the exact same time had a really good game is odd, isn't it? Isn't that kind of strange to you? It's strange to me. If you look at the defense, Khalil Mack had a great game, probably because he's an elite football player. Uh, DeAndre Houston Carson had a great game. He has like one or two of those a year, so that's believable. He had a 95 overall grade, basically. Um, And then you've got uh, not a whole lot. Deion Bush, 82. He played 15 snaps. And Chris Tonga played five snaps. You can rule that out. Robert Quinn had a 68. So there were four really good players. Um, Only one of them played significant snaps, and it's Khalil Mack. So really, the standout performers here that really made a big difference was the offensive line. That was the one thing that really turned a corner. Again, some some of the defensive pieces did a great job, but but isn't that kind of weird? Let me posit a theory here. At about, what was it, 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, what is it that happened of note that had everybody buzzing at about 6 o'clock in the morning prior to this game? 
it's going to sound a little radical. You probably know where I'm going with this, but just come along on the journey with me real quick. This was via Ian Rappaport at 5.57 a.m. prior to the game between the Bears and the Raiders. A statement on behalf of Fritz Pollard Alliance after the racist email reportedly sent by Raiders coach John Gruden in 2011. And this is, I'm not going to read this whole thing here, but uh, it talks about Raiders coach John Gruden being a racist and that he sent racist emails. John Gruden had to then go address his team, talk to his team, get his team ready to play, etc., etc. Is there any possibility that the contents of that email and, and the reality of what John Gruden was, did, etc., had a negative impact on his team prior to going out and playing the Chicago Bears? Is that possible? Well, let's dig a little bit further into this. There were a couple players. First of all, the entire team was terrible. Keep in mind, this is a three-and-one team going uh, to play Chicago at home. So the Chicago Bears had to fly all the way out to Las Vegas. Um, If we look at their grades, for example, um, you had... Two players on offense with 70 overall grades, none in the 80s, none in the 90s, and um, let's see, 17 players in the 60s or lower. You had uh, only nine players that were in the 60s or higher of 19. So that means 10 players were below average or just flat out terrible. That's just the offense. If we flip over to the defensive side, um, you've got... Uh, let's see, from 8 through 18. So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 players, that, uh, 11 out of 18 that were below 60, which is below average. It is, according to PFF, the worst game they've played all year. It is their lowest graded overall game. It is their second lowest overall offensive performance. Um, it is their, let's see, lowest graded defensive performance. Okay, could easily be a coincidence. All right, a couple other things. There's a few, because you got to you got to think about it this way too. Some players are going to care more than others. For some players, it may just be that it sapped that little extra going 110% out of them. And so you get more of a mediocre performance instead of a dominant performance, which is true of most of these grades. They're relatively average. However, there are some players that might have been impacted more than others. Let's take a look at tight end, the, the star tight end, Darren Waller. Darren Waller had the worst great, uh, game he's had this entire year. In fact, he's had he had the worst game he's had this year and last year. In fact, this is the lowest graded game he's had in his entire career through 2015, going all the way back to the Baltimore Ravens. As a rookie, he had one game where he graded at 44. This game was a 43.5. It was the lowest graded game of his entire career. Could still be a coincidence. That's true. How about Yannick Ngakwe? And this is where it gets interesting because they've got a couple really good pass rushers. In fact, I've been commenting on the Raiders and how really, really, really good their pass rushers are and the fact that I don't understand how they're doing it and they're doing it consistently. Yannick Ngakwe, who we know is bad, and Carl Nassib, who we know are, are, are bad football players as well as some other guys, are able to generate massive amounts of pressure. And again, what was the one thing the Chicago Bears did really, really well? Pass blocking, especially blocking in general, but pass blocking against the defensive line that is maybe the best in football right now. What the heck is going on? 
Yannick Ngakwe's first week, he had a 90 overall grade. After that, a 70, 72, and 70. This week, 47. Again, could be a coincidence. That's true. Let me, let me present you one more piece of information. One more little bit of information. And this is the most definitive, in my opinion. And it's Mr. Carl Nassib. Carl Nassib um, played for several different teams. He played for Cleveland for a couple years, Tampa for a couple years. He's been with the Raiders now for two years. Carl Nassib has been on an absolute terror. Terror. Here are his grades, starting in week one, working to week five. Tell me if you notice anything weird. 81, 68, 80, 82, 26. 26 was his grade in this game. He has had seven pressures throughout the season. He had zero in this game. But there's one other little bit of information. Mike Mayock did a uh, press conference today, kind of addressing all the things that were going on. And at the very end, he said he had one more uh, piece of information that he needed to add to this whole conversation. And, um, and in fact, I'll just play it for you um, so you can hear it for yourself. Last note, uh, Carl Nassib. He and I spoke yesterday a couple of times, spoke again today. We're going to meet later this afternoon. He requested a personal day today. He just said he's got a lot to process. There's a lot that's been going on the last few days. And, of course, we support that request. Carl Nassib has been one of the stars of that team for uh, the last several weeks. He was the lowest-graded player on the entire team this past week. Like I said, the news is going to impact people differently. Some people are going to have the ability to block it out and realize that uh, there's a game and a task in front of them, and I need to attack this task with everything that I've got. Other players are going to try to do that. They're going to try to do their best, but that lingering issue in the back of their mind is going to cause them to fall from a really good performance down to a pretty average performance. And some of these guys are really, really going to struggle with the information, struggle with the fact of the guy that they've been playing for and the things that he's said and done, the fact that that coach that he's been playing for, maybe the the reason he came to Las Vegas is now gone and this entire team and all their aspirations are done, which is probably a realization that many of these players found out when they realized when that tweet came out about six o'clock in the morning, they realized that despite this really, really good run we're on and the fact that we're probably going to go to four and one, or at least that's what they probably thought at the time, we're not going anywhere. And this big experiment that we've bought into that John Gruden is going to tear this thing down and rebuild it and we're going to grow and, and have this really special team, it's done. It's over with. That's what was weighing on a lot of these guys. That's what's weighing still today, as in Wednesday, for Carl Nassib who requested a day off from the owner and GM because he's so emotionally distraught about what's been going on, and I promise you he's not the only one. So when we look at the fact that this is the lowest amount of points that the Raiders have put out all season and they only put up nine points, I may put a little asterisk next to that. Maybe it's a little unfair. They only put up 14 the week before against the Chargers, and Carl Nassib is technically a defensive player, and the Bears only put up 20 which I would argue is because they're a horrific football team with a terrible offense. And despite all of the issues, despite some of the, the fact that some of their defensive players are having terrible day, a terrible day, the Bears just can't get out of their own way. But the bottom line is I'm not going to look at this nine points as proof positive that the Chicago Bears defense is truly, truly elite. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm saying I'm putting a giant asterisk next to this game that is so large, it's basically a line running through the game. 
not interested in what happened in this game because there was a whole lot of stuff going on prior to this game that's going to throw a few things off. I think this is a good enough, I think the Bears have a good enough defense. I think they're a solid defense. Overall, they've done a fairly good job keeping points down. 17 points against the Bengals, which is slightly better than what the Packers did. 14 points against the Lions. Again, slightly better than what the Packers have done. That's quite impressive. 26 points against the Browns, mediocre. 34 points against the Rams is kind of suspect, but I guess if I give us a pass week one, I can give them a pass in week one. But the point is, I would say that the Bears defense is slightly better than the Packers defense, and the Bears offense is putrid. The highest point total they have all year is 24 points, and that came against the Detroit Lions, who have probably the worst defense in football. Obviously, that's all up for debate also. I don't really feel like spiraling down the rabbit hole on every single team that I bring up because it's still a short season. Whatever. You get the point, though, right? So with that, I'm going to more or less rest my case. And when I move forward into looking at the Bears and the Packers game, any information that I think we learned about the Raiders, for example, and and again, that's that's the other thing. If if you're going to bring up, well, this is why they're good. Look at what they did to the Raiders. Explain to me who did a good job and who we need to be afraid of. Are you telling me that we need to be really afraid of the offensive line? Because if you're not, then you're already calling that game somewhat of a fluke because the entire offensive line shut down the Raiders and dominated them pretty much across the board with the exception of Jason Peters, as I said. Anyways, I think I'm going to leave it at that. I don't have any other stuff. Blah, blah, blah. Dee, dee, dee. So we got all Packer stuff on the other side of this. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy. Thank you very much to the support from Todd and Tom. Um, sorry if I didn't thank you guys personally. I get When I put up the polls and the questions and stuff, I get so many notifications about Patreon, I just start swiping them away because there's so many of them. And once in a while, it's a notification that you have a new patron. So I think I said thank you to all of you, but uh, if I didn't, I apologize. And thank you so much. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. 
Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, let's get started with um, some news. Unfortunately, Kevin King is injured again. Pat- Packers coach Matt LaFleur said that cornerback Kevin King won't practice today because of a shoulder injury. We'll give him the week to get ready, which means he's not saying whether he'll play. So obviously that's pretty massive. Maybe goes to why we're bringing in so many corners, partially because of depth and concerns and everything else. I don't know. On a more positive note, uh, Matt LaFleur said that both center Josh Myers and left tackle, that's what we're calling him now, Elton Jenkins will practice today, and he's hopeful he'll have both on Sunday. Quote, we need to be at our best, he said, of the game against the Bears. So again, not super definitive, but the fact that they're practicing is pretty solid. And I think one of them, if not both, was full participation. I'm not positive. Let me see if I can find that. So yeah, Josh Myers was full participation. So he's playing. Unless he gets hurt again, he's playing. Uh, the only guys that didn't practice, Dennis Kelly with a back injury and Kevin King. Uh, Jack Heflin, full participation, which is great. Um, Devontae Adams, Randall Cobb, limited participation, not injury-related. Elton Jenkins and Aaron Jones, both ankle injuries were limited. Vernon Scott, Robert Tunyon, both knee injuries were limited. Um, On the Bears side, I know I already went through some of this stuff, but since we're going through it, let's go through it. Um, Veteran rest for Jimmy Graham didn't practice. Akeem Hicks, groin injury, didn't practice. That's something very important to keep an eye on, obviously. J.P. Holtz, tight end quad injury, didn't practice. Caleb Johnson did not practice. Khalil Mack, Foot injury didn't practice. Obviously, that's important. Allen Robinson, as we said, didn't practice. And then all the limiteds, you've got Christian Jones, linebacker, Darnell Mooney, wide receiver, Damian Williams, running back, Xavier Crawford, defensive back, Duke Shelley, defensive back, Justin Fields, quarterback. Again, they said he's going to be good to go, but he's hurt. Uh, Joel Igogungbi, uh, linebacker, and Danny Trevathan, linebacker. The other thing I wanted to mention, uh, this is via uh, The Athletic. I guess we could look and see if it's changed but Packers are minus four and a half that's uh, as the away team so not as dominant but again you look at all the injuries and you look at what happened last week being close for the Packers almost losing to the Bengals Bears pretty much manhandling the Raiders it kind of makes sense on that note I just just want to go over it but I will say I'm that's one I promise you I'm not going to touch way too scared of this game especially with the way the Packers have been playing I expect them to win and narrowly I mean do we not expect a game-winning field goal kick? Because I don't know why we wouldn't. Um, kind of hodgepodge, and I threw a couple other notes that I wanted to touch on here. Why don't we go over to the Patreon poll? Um, 
because that's what we did for today. Again, uh, patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy if you want to participate in this. We had 47 people participate. It is a Bears-Packers confidence poll, and I probably will do this um, again as we get closer to just to see how things have, how the line has moved, whether that's based on outside circumstances, maybe listening to the podcast, whatever. But um, the options are Packers are going to stomp the Bears. Packers are going to win in a close game. It's a coin flip. Bears win in a close game, or I think we get stomped. Zero people picked the Bears to win. Four did say that they thought it was basically a coin flip. 18 people said the Packers will win, but it'll be a close game. 25 people said the Packers are going to absolutely stomp out the Bears. Getting to some of the comments on that. Uh, Killian, my uh, buddy from Ireland, says, would be massive if we could get Jenkins and or Myers back for this one. I feel like our offense isn't far away from destroying teams in the red zone again, similar to last year. Maybe that won't happen until the Washington football team game, but I think we win this game easily regardless. Fortunately, it does look like we will be getting them back. Mr. Andy Monday says, I think our pass rush getting home will be a big factor in this win. Matt LaFleur going for the throat on offense would be fun to see also. I 100% agree with that, and I think that they can. Aaron Nelson says, Justin Fields is about to meet Rashawn Gary and Kenny Clark. I'm so excited. I'm, I, I love it because I, I always watch the Bears games, and as you can probably tell, I watch it just to keep an eye on Justin Fields. I want to see if he's progressing and really rooting against him. Not because I have a personal vendetta, but because if he's successful, we're in a lot of trouble. And if he's not, we get to laugh at the Bears again. Think about that's the that's the thing that blows my mind when people get mad at me. You keep talking about Justin Fields. How is this not the biggest narrative for Packer fans outside of the Green Bay Packers? There is nothing bigger. There's nothing bigger than Justin Fields. If he is not successful, it's Mitch Trubisky 2.0, and we get to laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and mock and ridicule, and it's going to be glorious. It's going to be the most amazing thing ever. If Justin Fields is a great quarterback, we're in for doom, misery. There's nothing more important. So we get to watch the Green Bay Packers terrorize Justin Fields, hopefully get to watch him get just obliterated because he has been kind of a bad quarterback for the most part. A couple nice throws, but not many. And hopefully watch the Packers win. I mean, it's 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 both. The Bears lose. Justin Fields look like garbage. The Packers win. It's just, it's perfect. It has the potential to be a perfect day, and I'm excited about it. Mr. John Lambing says, I don't want to be overconfident, but it should be a solid victory on Sunday. That's pretty much where I'm at. I, I always am wary of being too confident, although Sundays, I it's basically my job to be way overconfident. And I promise you, most people tune out on the weekends. Find a way, because I'm going to have... So much fun on Sunday. It's going to be stupid. Uh, Aaron Nelson comes back around. He says, with all these ground-out, tough-fought victories, it's time for a classic Rodgers and Cobb-style decimation of the Bears. How glorious would that be if uh, if Cobb got in the mix? It almost seems like it has to be, doesn't it? We need. I mean, if for no other reason, why do we have Cobb if not to help destroy the Bears? Uh, it seems rational to me. Paula says, here's my concern. The Packers' offense is 27th in the red zone. The Bears' defense is third in the red zone. That definitely is a concern. Um, That's going to be a concern all year until they get it fixed. It does sound like there's a little bit of, uh, I don't know if I would say optimism, but it does sound like, at least for Aaron Rodgers' sake, he seems to feel like he knows exactly what the problem is. He made some kind of a vague reference to needing to be more aggressive with the scheme in the red zone. I'm positive that's going to be communicated to... um, Matt LaFleur, and and we'll see what the end result of that is. But um, at the end of the day, what it really just comes down to is is being able to execute on the ground and through the air. And if they can do that, I think that they're going to be okay. But that is definitely a concern. Now, the, the positive thing here 
is that even if they do struggle like they did against the Bengals and pretty much every other team, it's still going to ultimately come down to Justin Fields and that Bears offense marching down the field and scoring points over and over and over again to stay ahead of the Green Bay Packers. And that's going to be a secondary issue for the Bears. First is stopping the Packers. Second is actually scoring points against the Packers. Mr. Rogers says, I'm expecting uh, expecting a battle as always, but if the Bears' D doesn't score, I like our chances. That's a f- very valid point. Wayne says, Green Bay wins going away. Defense will feast on bear meat. Rodgers will have a great day. Love the energy. Dan says, I love how our interior rush performed against the Bengals. I hope they uh, keep it up. If so, we will blow them out. Not positive. They can, though. I'm fairly confident in Kenny, but yeah, we do. It would be nice if we can get Kiki or somebody to have a big day next to him. Uh, and then finally, Chad says, my heart says we stomp him, but I'm a bit concerned about pass rush, and that's that's pretty much where I'm at. I'm, I'm, I'm relatively confident we win. I have a hard time getting mentally to the point where I say we're just going to thrash him, but I'm not going to be opposed to that. Anyways, uh, just a couple other things. One thing is we should probably start keeping an eye on, I, I mentioned how Devontae Adams potentially could be a better version than we've ever seen of Devontae Adams, which every year seems impossible, and every year he finds a way to do it. We are starting to potentially get into greatest of all time territory, and, and obviously that depends what you mean by that, and there's certainly some wide receivers that he can't pass, but what I mean is there are some rec- records that he can touch. First of all, receptions. Second of all, receiving yards. Now, one of the complicating factors is the fact that there's an additional game this year. So there's kind of two different things. There's the absolute record, which just means he passed it. And then there's the sort of per game um, average. However, in terms of receptions, the record right now is 149 receptions on the season. Devontae Adams right now has 42. He is on track in 16 games for 134. And if we talk about all 17 games, 143. The record again is 149. It's hard to imagine his pace goes even higher, but if it does, there's a chance he could have the all-time receiving record in the entirety of the NFL. Receiving yards. The record for receiving yards is 1,964. Seems like a completely untouchable record that'll never be broken. Um, He has 579 already. If he continues this pace over, um, over 16 weeks, he'll have 1,853 which is just 100 shy. Over 17 games, 1,969, which is higher than the record, which is to say, if he continues this pace through 17 games, he will officially, unofficially have the record for most receiving yards in a regular season. I don't know if postseason is countered in this. I have to assume it's not. If it is, then he definitely has a shot. But even if we say it doesn't count because it's 17 games. And by the way, he still has the potential to break either of these in 16. It's not out of entirely out of reach. But even if he does it in 17 and there's the, again, asterisk next to it, that's still freaking cool. So it is something to keep an eye on that he's on pace right now to break the all-time receiving record over 17 games, potentially has the ability to break receiving and or receiving yards records over 16 or at least 17 games. Just something to keep an eye on as we move forward. Touchdowns, which is usually his bread and butter. He's already got the third highest touchdowns ever in a season with 20. Very unlikely he breaks any records with that because he's off to a really slow start as far as touchdowns. But who knows? Never count out Devontae. He has a couple like two, three, four touchdown games. He's back in the race. Finally, one last thing, and I could probably cut this off and do it tomorrow, but what the heck. 
we got to start talking about the Bears. So let's let's talk about it. I've, I've kind of, I'm only bringing this up, and I don't mean to pick on the guy, but I'm only bringing it up because I've kind of talked about this the last couple days. There is a general annoyance I have with this God complex for Aaron Rodgers, the idea that he is a perfect, um, all-knowing, all-being thing. And um, the reason we can't run the ball is because Aaron Rodgers has to take over, right? And even if the running the ball is working, we have to stop and give the ball to Aaron Rodgers where he can throw an incomplete pass and then we have to punt because it's Aaron Rodgers and how dare you take the ball out of his hand. And if we ever lose a game, it's because we took the ball out of Aaron Rodgers' hands. And I just don't like that. I don't, I, it's, it's foolish and it's silly and it's, I feel like I'm not watching the same games. Yes, he's a good quarterback, but balance is important. Assuming that he's going to win any and all games if we just put the ball in his hands, which we should know to be false, is nonsense. I understand he's good, and I understand there's some kind of a trust level, but there's there are times you're going to run the ball. I'm very sorry about that. There's times on like a third and one when you run the ball, and if they don't convert on a third and one, throwing a temper tantrum and saying that, well, you shouldn't have taken the ball out of Aaron Rodgers' hands, you should trust your MVP, blah, 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 is nonsense. The idea that we can go backwards and just know that Aaron Rodgers absolutely would have converted, it makes me a little bit crazy. And so when I saw an article at Sports Illustrated by Mr. Connor Orr, uh, I got a little bit annoyed. Packers hang on to beat the Bengals, but once again, take the ball out of Aaron Rodgers' hands. Uh, what? <laughs> Green Bay was burned in the playoffs, and it's becoming a troubling trend that Matt LaFleur won't just let his MVP quarterback go win the game. We, we did win the game. I don't understand. Anyways, I don't want to read the whole thing, but I want to at least capture, it, it, it fairly articulate his point, so I'm not just picking on him without fairly articulating his point. And again, to some degree, I get it, but it's just, it's overly deifying Rodgers and not acknowledging his humanity. It's crazy. The Fox broadcast crew trailed Mason Crosby around the sideline after his third missed attempt at a game-winning field goal, giving us that critical perverse window into the immediate moments following the worst part of someone's day. With kickers, this feels especially cruel, given that so much of their task is mental, and like all of us, there are days when certain synapses just aren't firing the way we'd like them to. You and I spill our coffee, forget our uh, the key fob for our sedan, and hit the curb, blah, 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 blah. A kicker can't untweak a plant foot in front of 70,000 people, and most NFL kickers, by the way, do not have specific coaches who can deal with their psyche, blah, blah, blah. Okay, anyway. The framing of the camera shot is obvious, that he is the man who made the mistake, or the man who is blowing it, when the reality of the situation is far more open-ended. What about the coach who kept sending him out there knowing Crosby's somewhat fragile state? Especially when that coach, the Packers' Matt LaFleur, also happened to have the single most talented quarterback in the NFL. All right, first of all, very, very odd timing for this. I feel like this is something that's been in his drafts and he finally just unloaded it because it doesn't make sense because we won the freaking game. And we won the game because Matt LaFleur made the express decision to send Mason Crosby out and kick the game-winning field goal, and he made it. And, and to go back and say, you shouldn't have had him kick it because he was in a fragile mental state. Instead, you should have had Aaron Rodgers go for it on fourth and one or whatever the situation is. In that case, uh, the game winner wasn't fourth and one, I don't think, but the other, whatever. One of these other times, he should have just gone for it. The problem is, would you actually go back in time now knowing the end result? Of course you wouldn't. So why? I don't understand. It's such a hard argument to win when you put yourself in a position where you already lost. But we'll continue. Crosby ended up winning the game with a 49-year field goal after three straight misses on Sunday, plus an extra point. 
but did so on fourth and inches at the Cincinnati 32-yard line just after the two-minute warning in overtime on the previous possession again. After two straight Crosby misses, LaFleur opted to play for a field goal despite being handed the ball on the Bengals 17-yard line. On that possession, LaFleur called a pair of handoffs, lost five yards, and kicked on third and 15. All right, so let's let's revisit this because we're kind of just playing silly games here. Let's provide a little bit of context. So the game winner was actually fourth and one. That's the one that he's saying that maybe we shouldn't have sent out Mason for a 49-year field goal. We should have put it in Aaron Rodgers' hands. Again, the problem being, if the Packers don't convert, which is entirely possible, it's entirely possible the Cincinnati Bengals get the ball and go down and win and we lose the game, meaning that was the wrong call. Trusting Mason Crosby to get right in his own mind, allowing the up, him the opportunity to get right, which is not only going to help him help us win the game, which we did, but help him in the future, knowing that he got the game winner, rather than ending it on a note where even if we even if that plan does win and we win a different way, where Aaron Rodgers converts and they go down and score a touchdown, now Mason Crosby doesn't get the opportunity for the game winner. He put trust in Mason Crosby and it paid off. Silly argument. The time before that, though, what he's talking about. We're at the 17-yard line. He decides to run the ball twice and then kick a field goal. Why did he do that instead of throwing the ball? Probably because we're on the 17-yard line. You have what is considered to be a guaranteed field goal. The idea that we know Mason is going to miss a chip shot field goal and should instead throw the ball at the 17-yard line is insane. That's a terrible decision. No, you don't throw the ball when you get the ball at the 17-yard line. You run the ball and see what happens. They lost yards twice in a row, and then at that point on third down, it's like, you know what? Enough. We lost five yards. That already sucks. And it probably hurt us to the point where we should have just kicked that on first down maybe. But I don't know that we necessarily expected to lose yards twice in a row. Again, hindsight is nice, although you don't seem to care for hindsight too much when you look at the fact that we actually won the game. But that's, that's the right call. You run the ball a couple times, see what happens, and then on third down, you kick it. And it sucks we lost a couple yards, whatever. The idea, again, though, that on the 17-yard line, we should throw the ball is a little crazy to me. There's no reason to. Well, what if he misses it? Well, of course, what if? And what if Aaron Rodgers throws a pick because he's a human being? Beyond that, and this is a, a point I'm going to illustrate a little bit further on. Well, I guess I'll, I'll, I got I to do it now to make the point, but... It's not just a matter of Aaron Rodgers. Even if we, let's just, let's just pretend Aaron Rodgers is perfect and he is physically God and he can't make wrong decisions and he can't do anything wrong. He is still subject to the rest of the people around him. Aaron Rodgers can't force touchdowns to happen. He can't force his offensive line to block for him and prevent sacks, which by the way, what would everybody be saying if he went for a pass and got a seven yard sack? What an idiot. Why are you throwing the ball? You're on the 17 yard line. And you know what? That criticism would be absolutely correct. And fortunately, or hopefully, he doesn't fumble the ball in the process of being sacked. You cannot control the offensive line. No matter how good Aaron Rodgers is, he's not an offensive lineman. He's the quarterback. And those factors do come into play. Additionally, what about tipped passes? What if he throws to the right wide open receiver, but a defender gets his hand up, bats the ball in the air, and it gets picked off? Thirdly, what about players doing the wrong thing? like not catching passes. That's also a factor. It's not just a matter of saying, why would you take the ball out of Aaron Rodgers' hands? Aaron Rodgers doesn't control the whole thing. It's not like we're talking about, you know, uh, Adrian Peterson taking a direct snap or Tom Brady on a, on a QB sneak where you're, you're in control of 90% of the outcome. Other interesting thing to note here is that he talked about the final one where on fourth and one we kicked the game winner, which again is odd. You shouldn't go for it on fourth and one, because if you don't get it, then you're in a lot of trouble. And even if you do get it, you still have to drive down the field and, you know, 
Plus, we won the game, so that's not a great point. The other point that he made was the one from the 17-yard line. And again, I vehemently disagree that you would do anything other than run the ball. The only other alternative is just kick it on first down, because why not? But he doesn't want to talk about the last, but there is somewhat of an issue. Um, The time before this, he missed a a field goal. It was second down because it was one second left on the clock to win it in in the fourth quarter, right? So that was one situation. How about the 36-yarder that he missed, though? How, How is that series... Well, um, first down, A.J. Dillon ran for no gain. Second down, Aaron Rodgers' pass incomplete. So now it's third and 10. Aaron Rodgers' pass for Devontae Adams is incomplete. Mason Crosby is queued up for a 36-yard field goal and misses. Here's the other problem I have with this, and we're going to give another example of this, which is in his article because I think it's fair. Aaron Rodgers had the opportunity to win the game. It was right here. It was on second and 10, from the 18-yard line, later 3rd and 10 from the 18-yard line. Pretending that we took the ball out of his hand when it was 4th and 10 is dishonest. He had the opportunity with 2 minutes left from the Cincinnati 18-yard line to get a 1st down and ultimately get a touchdown, and he failed on back-to-back attempts, which brought Mason Crosby out for a 36-yard field goal that he missed. So again, the idea that if you just put the ball in his hand, he can never do wrong is nonsense. Here's two back-to-back incompletions. The the article continues, and I I have gone on this tirade before. I'm going to do it again. LaFleur went 13-3 in each of his first two seasons and beat 3-1 Bengals on Sundays. So perhaps feel a bit pedantic after the Packers' fourth straight win. But now when you consider his his memorably cited... how, that he memorably cited against his quarterback in last year's playoffs as well. LaFleur's decision to not allow Aaron Rodgers to try to score on a fourth and goal in the NFC title game with the Packers trailing by eight was so egregious that it spawned a viral moment on Jeopardy. It was not egregious. That's stupid. It was not egregious. The fact that it spawned a viral moment on Jeopardy just means Aaron Rodgers didn't like it. It doesn't make it egregious because Aaron Rodgers, again, is not God and his decisions are not always the right decisions. Of course he wants the ball because he's the quarterback. Here's the problem, though. Again, he had the ball, he had the opportunities, and he failed. Here's the series that everybody's so mad about. First and eight from the Tampa Bay eight-yard line, Aaron Rodgers incomplete to Lazard. Second and eight, Aaron Rodgers incomplete to Devontae Adams. Third and eight, Aaron Rodgers incomplete to Devontae Adams. And by the way, many of those passes were straight-up garbage. He had guys and just threw the ball into the dirt instead of into their hands and scoring a touchdown. Aaron Godgers here had the opportunity to win the game, to win the game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Granted, you still have to get the touchdown and then get a two-point conversion just to tie it, which is incredibly unlikely, which is also why the whole field goal thing, pretending that that was such an obvious wrong decision is silly to me. But again, he had the opportunity. He could have done it. He had his chance three times in a row from the eight-yard line and failed. The idea that we know that if we would have just given it to him on fourth and eight because he's some great MVP while ignoring the fact that the great MVP missed three times in a row, we know that on fourth down he would have got it. How do you know? How do you know? How do you know that the guy that just failed three times in a row that has done almost nothing in this game against the Tampa Bay defense that has looked terrible on this series in particular, how do you know he's going to get a touchdown and back-to-back drives? Because again, remember, he has to get a second touchdown on a two-point conversion just to tie it. He had his opportunities. How about the series before that? Aaron Rodgers sacked by Shaquille Barrett. Aaron Rodgers pass incomplete to Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Aaron Rodgers pass incomplete to Alan Lazard. J.K. Scott punts 51 yards. That was the series before this series. How about the one before that? Aaron Rodgers pass incomplete. Aaron Rodgers 
uh, pass for five yards. Aaron Rodgers sacked. Punt. The ball was in his hands the last, as far as I can tell, six times in a row prior to that drive. And it led to two punts. The MVP had the ball in his hand. By the way, that's all he did. This is, this is the entire fourth quarter. Incomplete, five-yard pass, sack. Sack, incomplete, incomplete. Then we get on this final drive. He throws a 29-yard pass to MVS. He throws an incomplete pass to MVS. He throws a 9-yard pass, an 11-yard pass. We finally get into the range, and again, incomplete, incomplete, incomplete. Again, he's not God, okay? Just because he won MVP doesn't mean he's infallible. There are a lot of variables, including a very good defense. Aaron Rodgers, who's shaken up, who's been terrible in this fourth quarter. The offensive line has been terrible, who also needs to hold up on this fourth down try. The wide receivers have not been very good, who also need to perform on this fourth down try. So yeah, there's not a lot of confidence. Speaking of, a couple more things I want to point out. Some losses from last year, the, the losses that were actually kind of close. Number one, the Indianapolis Colts. First of all, Aaron Rodgers had the ability to win this game in the fourth quarter with 12 seconds left, right? He's got one, sh- well, he's got a couple shots at it, um, but third and three from the eight-yard line. You can get a first down, and then you're, you're kind of running against the clock, but you can get a first down to, to get a new set of downs or just throw a touchdown. What happens? Aaron Rodgers incomplete to Devontae Adams. So now it's fourth and three with seven seconds left. We settle for a field goal and have to take it into overtime. Again, he had the opportunity to win, and didn't, and so we had to settle for a field goal. Now, carrying on. We get the ball at halftime. First pass, first and 10, Aaron Rodgers short right to Aaron Jones for eight yards. Second pass is completed to Marquez Valdez-Scantling for minus one yards. Marquez Valdez-Scantling gets hit, fumbles the ball, recovered by DeForest Buckner. Well, that's not Aaron Rodgers' fault. Exactly. That's my second point, though, isn't it? It's not just about Aaron Rodgers. If you give the ball to Aaron Rodgers and trust him, that's great. But you also have to trust the wide receivers, that they're going to run the right routes, that they're going to catch the ball, and that they're not going to fumble the ball. You also have to trust that of the, wide, of the running backs, of the tight ends. You also have to trust the offensive line, that they're going to hold up and not give up sacks, which, as we've already seen several times, is not always a guarantee. Thanks to a mistake by Marquez Valdez-Scantling, after giving the ball to Aaron Rodgers and trusting him, the, uh, the Colts... Start from our own 29-yard line. They run the ball a couple times, which, shame on them. What a stupid thing to do. They're in field goal range, and they run it twice, or ran it three times, got five yards, and then kicked a field goal, because I don't know why you would do that. But they did that. They kicked a field goal and won, which is pretty much exactly what we did. We ran the ball twice, kicked a field goal and won. Seems to be a winning strategy, but apparently it's a terrible idea. But again, the ball was in Aaron Rodgers' hands. He didn't win the game, so we kicked a field goal. We went into overtime. We put the ball in Aaron Rodgers' hands because we trust him and we know that he can get the job done. And and he kind of did, but the pieces around him failed, which is a factor that needs to be taken into account. The idea that we can just trust him no matter what. As long as the ball is in his hands, magic will happen and and manna will will rain down from the skies and we will win the game. It's, it's It's a juvenile, storybook, nonsense way of viewing things. Finally, the other loss that was kind of close was the Minnesota Vikings game. 22-28 to is how the Green Bay Packers lost this game. The score is 22-28. to Aaron Rodgers has the ball. They're at the 28-yard line. There's 47 seconds left. He throws a 7-yard pass to Jamal. Now there's 42 seconds left. He throws another 7-yard pass to Jamal. There, it's 1st and 10 from the 42. There's 37 seconds left. He throws a 17-yard pass to Robert Tunyon. There are now 13 seconds left. 
They're on the Minnesota 41-yard line. He spikes the ball. Second and 10, 12 seconds left. What happens? Aaron Rodgers is sacked by DJ Wonham for no gain. Aaron Rodgers fumbles, recovered by Eric Wilson of Minnesota. Offensive line fails. He gets sacked. He fumbles the ball. Defense recovers. Game over. We put the ball in his hand. We trusted him, which is the right thing to do. I'm not saying you shouldn't have, but what I am saying is it's not a foolproof plan. It's not a guarantee that as long as the ball is in Aaron Rodgers' hands, nothing can go wrong. Everything can go wrong, and we see it all the time. Have you never seen a three and out from the Green Bay Packers offense? Has every three and out been three runs? No. Very often, Aaron Rodgers makes mistakes. And if he doesn't make mistakes very often, the offensive line or the tight end or the running back in, on, you know, as a receiver or the wide receivers, they make mistakes. So the, again, this sort of weird, juvenile, infantile view of as long as you pass the ball with Aaron Rodgers, you can't lose is silly. And to pick this game of all games when there really wasn't anything in which they took the ball out of Aaron Rodgers' hands and shouldn't, the only two examples, again, that are being, well, three examples being cited, number one is the NFC Championship game, which, again, completely ignores a million different factors to make it look very obvious. You know, again, this MVP quarterback, go look at that game and how well he was doing against that defense when you got three automatic points sitting on the board. Go back and look at that. The odds of him getting two back-to-back touchdowns there were about as close to zero as you can get. But then the other examples, again, silly examples, are number one, the game-winning field goal kick. We should have just gone for it. Strange uh, argument. And number two is the time we were on the 17-yard line and you apparently wanted to throw the ball. I mean, okay, uh, but I think that's a very unnecessarily dangerous thing to do. I understand Mason missed, but to, to pretend like we should have had the foresight to know that he was going to miss that field goal, which at the time was, I think, his third field. And he's, by the way, he made a bunch of field goals in this game. I think he had missed an extra point and one field goal at this point. And none of them were, well, the extra point obviously is a chip shot, but none of the other field goals aside from this one were essentially considered chip shots. This is a 40-yard field goal. He makes these all the time. And he missed it. So I, I just, again, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of picking on Connor here. Um because it's just a larger point that keeps getting brought up that I I don't think is very well articulated. I don't think anybody ever comes up with an argument that makes a lot of sense. Um, There are times when you should run, there are times when you should throw, but just this sort of blanket statement that um, if you lose a game, or in this case, win a game, while doing anything other than giving the ball to Aaron Rodgers, you failed. Because Aaron Rodgers is flawless. It's this weird Aaron Rodgers worship that I will never understand. And it's way over the top. He's not perfect. He's not flawless. He's a very good quarterback. And we're all very glad that he's there and he can make a lot of good things happen. But the idea that no matter what, when the chips are down, you always throw it because you have Aaron Rodgers is incorrect. It's incorrect. And I rest my case with that. I got to get going. You folks have yourselves a fantastic day. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.